0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Christine Bro and Quentin Rowe-Codner. A lot has been changing for workers over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. Different workers have, of course, experienced it all quite differently. Working from home for some, lots of job losses, changes to work processes, new kinds of risk that just weren't there before, or some combination. And, despite the loosening of public health restrictions, risk remains. Many experts believe that it is likely that we will see a renewed wave of infections in the fall, and the details of the toll that the economic downturn will take on workers are still emerging, including the threat of a wave of austerity and government cuts that will target programs and services that working people depend on. Whether it is better safety measures, pay that reflects their importance and the risks they take, or just basic dignity, a lot of workers have a lot of concerns. In this context, it's more important than ever that workers be able to stand up and demand their rights. What exactly it looks like to stand up and demand their rights also looks different for different groups of workers. But one absolutely crucial recourse for lots of workers, even as pandemics rage and economies crash, even through political turmoil and all manner of uncertainty, is organizing into a union. Christine Bro is the lead organizer with Local 2 of the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, and she's based in Vancouver. SEIU Local 2 represents workers across Canada, particularly janitors in a number of cities, but also a broad range of other workers doing a lot of what could mostly be characterized as service jobs. Quentin Roe Codner is a sales associate at a private liquor store in Maple Ridge, B.C., and he and his colleagues recently voted to unionize with SEIU Local 2. Union organizing at its best involves a lot of person-to-person interaction. You meet with a worker in a cafe or at their home, you listen to their concerns about their job, you answer any questions they have, and you build a relationship. When a lot of that in-person work suddenly became impossible back in March because of the pandemic, Bro knew that a lot of workers were about to need union protections more than ever, and the union couldn't just tell them to stop and wait. As quickly as they could, SEIU Local 2 launched an online platform and a campaign called Unions Are Essential. The site offers some basic information about workers' rights and the advantages of belonging to a union, but more importantly, it offers a mechanism to be in direct touch with a union organizer by either sending a message or through live chat. This has served as an initial contact point in a totally revamped organizing process that has had to adapt to the changing public health circumstances. The union drive at the store where Roe Codner works started with a conversation between him and one of his co-workers. They both recognized some not-great things that had been true about their workplace all along, and that the pandemic was making more stark. Plus, they were way busier, so the store was making a lot more money, but the workers were having to work a lot harder, were less safe, and were not being paid accordingly. Roe Codner called Bro, whom he already knew, and got things started. They signed up a majority of workers at their location, handily parried the anti-union campaign from their employer, and ended up winning their certification vote. Bro says that connecting with workers through the Unions Are Essential site and doing organizing through video conferencing platforms, chat services, and other online tools has definitely been working. Bro Codner's workplace is only one of several where they've won votes in recent months, but that said, she's also very clear that, quote, the best way to organize is the traditional face-to-face. More recently, they've been happy to be able to return to a physically distanced version of in-person organizing. But with the course of the pandemic uncertain as we move into autumn, SEIU Local 2 is ready whatever happens, and they now have more tools to engage with a wider range of workers moving forward. I speak with Bro and Roe Codner about the experiences of workers during the pandemic, about the organizing drive at Roe Codner's workplace, and about unions are essential.
1: My name is Christine Bro. I'm the lead organizer with the Service Employees International Union, Local 2. I've been working now almost eight years as an organizer the SEIU. I worked out of Toronto and Ottawa, and for the last four years, I've been in Vancouver. Before that, in general, I was always interested in social justice, political issues. So at the time when I had finished my university education and was looking for work, I was always involved in political and social justice issues. So this sort of became a natural way for me to continue fighting towards these social, economic, political issues that we face. Regarding the Service Employees International Union, Local 2 pretty much expands from coast to coast. We represent a lot of essential workers. We have our Justice for Janitors campaign, so representing janitors, all the way from Halifax to Vancouver, brewery, winery, and private liquor stores now with Jack's, The other brewery workers we have, like the Molson, the Labats, Okanagan Springs. Here in the Okanagan region, there's Mission Hill Winery, transportation workers, like from waste collection, security guards in Halifax, social service workers, educational workers. So it really just expands all across the country and across different sectors. In May of 2020, this year, we launched the Unions Are Essential campaign in response to the major toll the pandemic has taken on workers. We saw thousands of workers across the country that were laid off with no guaranteed callback, losing their seniority and benefits. And then, of course, we saw that the government was dragging their feet in mandating adequate personal protective equipment. So we saw cases where workers were losing their jobs, but at the same time, those workers that continued to work and were deemed essential workers, that sort of buzzword of essential workers, they were being faced with poor occupational health and safety measures. In some cases, no increased wages, despite the increased responsibilities and sort of putting their life on the line and working especially at the peak of the pandemic. So from that backdrop, that's where we launched the Unions Are Essential campaign.
2: And my name is Quentin. I'm a sales associate at Jack's Beer, Wine and Spirits Maple Ridge. I've been working there for a little over two years now. And I helped organize this most recent successful union drive at the store along with the union and some of my coworkers. I've been in activism for the past five years or so. I've been involved with a variety of things. I've been involved with groups like the International Socialist Vancouver primarily. And from there, I branched out to organizing in climate movement or anti-racist work and a bunch of different things like that student movement has been pretty key for me over the past few years as a student at SFU. And I'm also studying labor studies at SFU, which has helped me understand the labor movement a lot better. And it's you know something that I want to be involved with closely going forward. So when it came to helping organize at JAX, it was obviously something that I was very keen on doing right from the start.
0: How has COVID changed things for the many different kinds of workers that you work with, Christine? It was
1: sort of dependent on different sectors, like for the janitorial sector. Some were laid off, some continued to work because it was deemed essential. And you started to see a lot of workload actually increase because they were making cuts. But then at the same time, they needed more spots cleaned and things like that. So in some cases, you start to see more of a work. We launched this Invisible to Essential campaign demanding that property managers keep workers employed throughout the crisis and ask for a $2 hazard pay. And unfortunately, the janitors that were outside of the healthcare sector didn't receive that hazard pay. It really depended on property managers. So someone like Canada Post, where our members cleaned the offices out there, they did give something called hero pay. But in the end, across the whole sector of the commercial and retail janitors, for the most part, none of them really received hazard pay. But, you know, at the very beginning, at the peak of the crisis, people were really afraid. Literally, they felt they were risking their lives every time they left the house and coming back to their families. So it was really a very difficult process. You know, you're saying like, okay, you need to go to work because your work is deemed essential. The government is saying your work is essential, but they weren't getting essential pay for their work. This was really at the very peak. Some of our other members did get hazard pay, such as in the breweries and so forth. In regards to working conditions, like that was another fight we had to have with the janitorial contractors, like making sure our members had PPE, sort of explaining what their rights are. We had created a COVID-19 response page where had like frequently asked questions, the right to refuse work and just general education. And like the first month when it was really the peak, it was more like calling through every single member of mm-hmm. ours. And then also at the same time, reaching out to other non-union workers to tell them what kind of rights they have right now also in regards to a lot of members especially members on the lower wage who have two or three jobs in some cases workers who are working in hospitals or care homes had to choose to leave one job because they've made some restrictions here the vancouver health authority so some people ended up making less because they were forced to only limit themselves to one job
0: and quentin how has it changed things in your workplace
2: I mean, obviously, there's been numerous changes around safety and cleanliness. We've obviously got those big plastic shields that you see at a lot of retail stores right now so that we're not like a foot away from our customers when we're talking to them. We have a lot of sanitation and stuff like that to make sure that everything's clean, make sure that the things that customers are touching are going to be sanitized and everything like that. So we're all going a little bit above and beyond to make sure that there's no real spread of germs in the store. Masks and gloves are provided. So yeah, just the basic things like that. Originally, during the pandemic, when it was first heating up, you could say, we got rid of cash, which is important for us because cash is how we make tips. And so the store did provide us with a little bit of extra pay just to replace our loss in tips during that time, even though that was rolled out very inconsistently as well. We had some workers who would have to self-isolate for a couple weeks and then coming back while the pandemic was still very real, as it still is, and not receiving that little bit extra, even though they're still working during a pandemic. And so very unfair in that regard. They were bringing on new people who would be paid more, a lot more than people who had been working there for years and years. And we haven't really seen any improvement to our general working lives. There is some protections with, like I said, with sanitizing and stuff like that. But in terms of our actual working lives, not much has really changed. One way that I've been looking at it is that a lot of issues that we've had for a long time at the workplace, it's made those issues a lot more apparent. There have been issues at the store for a long while to do with wages, to do with scheduling, to do with benefits or a number of things, just inconsistencies in management, how things are operated, those kinds of things. But they've all kind of been under the surface. We haven't really talked about them amongst coworkers so much. We just, you know, took it. But now with COVID happening, it's become a lot more apparent, I guess, what kind of place we hold at Jack's as workers. The fact that Jax is making soaring profits during the COVID pandemic because all of the bars are closed. And now at the end of summer, people are going away for one last little attempt to have a trip before the summer ends. So there's been a lot of traffic in the store and there's been a lot of profits. And at the end of the day, we're the ones who are making those profits possible. And so the fact that we're not seeing any improvement to our conditions by any real measure, the fact that we're having to risk our health to make these profits possible, we definitely feel like we deserve to be compensated better. We feel as though we deserve a say at the table for how our work lives are determined because we're a little bit fed up with all of the inconsistencies and unaccountability in the workplace.
0: Tell me about the initial conversations within SEIU that led to the Unions Our Essential website and campaign.
1: Part of the thing COVID-19 did is turn our organizing theory upside down a bit because part of our organizing strategy is meeting workers face-to-face, usually in homes or in cafes, like in person, and especially during the peak, that was not possible. So we're like, okay, there's many workers out there who are still working, who continue to have their rights violated and are not part of a union. They're forced to come to work. They're not being properly compensated. And probably many of them have even questions about what their rights are for the workers who are laid off and not part of a union. They don't have things like recall rights that are like very normal to have in any collective agreement is very limited in the employment standards provision or non-existent. So part of the impulse for launching this Unions Are Essential campaign is to give access to workers. Like you'll see when you go on the website, there's a sort of live chat option where they can contact us and chat with us about their situation. There's also a form they could fill out that we can then contact them. So our organizing theory of like going house to house or meeting people got turned upside down during COVID. And we needed to think of more creative ways that workers could organize because COVID-19 showed that it's more necessary to organize than even before. I mean, it's always been necessary, but especially with, we know that we're going to start to hear austerity, you know, cuts and all that stuff. Even you start to see as people go back to work, like they want workers to make compromises. So this campaign was launched to give workers access to continue to organize, whether it be through setting up Zoom meetings, like through different creative ways, right? And now at least the labor board here in BC, it took them a while, they moved to electronic voting. So that was very helpful. So even though we couldn't do the traditional organizing method, it's allowed for a more creative way and access for workers to organize or even have questions answered on how to organize and so forth. And as people got called back to work, and we're seeing this now in many industries, their conditions have actually worsened in many cases. So we knew that there'd be more workers as they go back to work, being asked to work in a pandemic, you know, that they're going to think about how can I make things better for myself right now? And having that resource to be able to contact an organizer and then be supported in their organizing drive is what drove
0: this campaign. How did the campaign go at your workplace, Quentin? Things
2: started, like I said earlier, it was just me and another coworker, Daylin, who were closing one night. We were talking about you know unions and everything like that and whether or not we thought it was possible to put a union in JAX. So we listed out our coworkers and just tried to imagine like where they would fall in terms of wanting to unionize or being potentially anti-union. And after taking that initial look, we decided that it was most likely possible. So we decided to go further our next step was just contacting the union. I had known Christine previously and so emailed her and she was very interested right off the bat, which was very good. We met up with Christine, talked about the union a little bit more and what it would take to unionize, got some cards and basically started card signing right off the bat. Card signing was Pretty standard, pretty easy, you could even say, because usually we have anywhere between two to maybe six or seven people working at the same time at the very most. And so, usually, what we would do is we would approach people if we're working with them one on one, just try and talk to them about how they feel about the workplace right now, how they're feeling just with everything going on, with the pandemic, with working, with you know, all sorts of things. And if we felt like they would potentially like to see a union as a solution to these problems, we would then try and sign them up. So it was pretty easy to communicate with people because we are communicating with them all the time at work. And because we do have a lot of those one on one moments at our location. So that made it quite a bit easier for us to navigate. And yeah, beyond that, after we got the card signing done, which we did, in pretty good time, and a lot of that is thanks to Dalen being very keen on that phase, which was really helpful and, yeah, impressive. But then, after that, we decided to file.
0: Uh, So, just to clarify for listeners, what that means is that enough people had signed cards indicating that they wanted to unionize, that the union could submit them to the Labour Board. At that point, the Labour Board orders a vote by workers in one week's time, which determines whether the unionization effort is successful or not. And note that the details of this process and the rules vary in different jurisdictions.
2: And we timed it for the long weekend, so I think around BC Day, where we would file on the Friday, and so the Labour Board would notify Jacks about the union drive on the Tuesday after BC Day, which was opportune for us. It gave us the weekend to kind of prepare people for what would be happening during vote week. Most of the employees have already been accounted for. And I'll also say that a lot of our coworkers surprised us when we initially listed everybody out and kind of decided whether or not we would think that they are pro-union or anti-union or anything like that. A lot of people ended up surprising us and were a lot more responsive to this union drive than we had thought that they would be. Some people were just completely fed up and were ready to sign right away. There was a couple people who, of course, were hesitant because, you know, they might have not known what signing a union card really meant, didn't know what their rights were. So sometimes we would have to work with people and clarify their rights and everything like that. But that's completely fine. But yeah, a lot of people really did surprise us with how responsive they were, which was really amazing. And going into the vote week was pretty interesting. <laughs> we knew some of what to expect because the union had obviously, you know, been doing this for a very long time. They knew who the lawyer was, who Jack had hired, and so we're kind of used to his tactics. And so we had an idea of what to expect. And sure enough, they tried to throw us off our game a little bit. They sent an email listing out all of the ways in which, you know, a union might not actually be the best idea. They tried to word it vaguely so that they could get away with it, but it was basically to sow confusion and maybe a little bit of skepticism amongst people. We were prepared for that. We were able to send out response emails pretty quickly after the store sent theirs. We would do almost daily checkups with a lot of people to make sure that they were all ready to go, to make sure that if they had any questions, if the boss had approached them, because the bosses had been calling people quite frequently as well during the week. So there was a lot of just checking up on people and making sure that nobody had any concerns or questions that we left unanswered. The store did try hiring somebody who is anti-union to try and throw off our vote. I think that they thought that we were a lot weaker than we actually were. Part of the reason why the store thought that we were a lot weaker than we were was because just due to our workplace, a lot of people wanted to stay anonymous. They just didn't want the bosses to know that they had signed a card and everything like that. And so due to everything like that, and I guess you could say even due to COVID to a certain extent, doing a public vote week kind of thing wasn't what we ended up doing.
0: Uh, And that's meaning a public, visible, pro-union campaign during the week preceding the certification vote.
2: Which was something that we had talked about doing, which a few of us thought was a good idea. And I think that generally it is a very good idea. But just because of how the cards fell, it wasn't what ended up being reliable for us. And so a lot of people did stay anonymous throughout vote week. And because of that, the store thought that we were a lot weaker than we actually were. And, yeah, we were able to turn it into a very successful vote at the end of the day.
0: And, Christine, you were talking earlier about how there are at least some workers out there feeling greater need for a union, given everything that's going on. But given the serious economic downturn, and how many people are out there looking for work, there must also be some workers who feel that potentially alienating their employer is an even greater risk than usual, too. What's your sense of how workers are balancing the greater need with the possible perception of greater risk?
1: That's a very good question. I mean, it's rare for me to come across ideological anti-union workers. It's really two things that hold them back. It's fear and it's lack of confidence in what we call the plan to win. So that's holds people back pre-COVID. And I think it's going to continue to hold people back post-COVID. And of course, there is a reality that, yes, the economy is struggling a bit. But at the end of the day, there's also businesses that are thriving and making record profits but workers aren't getting a fair share in the work they put in and the risks that they take. So I think workers who are currently working these essential jobs are like, what's going on? Like I'm working and I'm putting myself at risk every day and I'm not getting properly compensated. I need to do something about this. I mean, really, yeah, it is a decision that has to come from the worker. And like in Clinton's experience, he spoke to others and it couldn't have been possible unless you bring everybody else on board, right? I do think that the struggle of organizing will continue to be the same calculations that workers are making, the same fears continue to exist even before COVID. And I I think in that sense, not much has changed. In fact, I think it's going to create a larger impetus. I hope at least it does for workers to start organizing. And those that were laid off are realizing that the Employment Standards Act provisions have very weak provisions for workers. I often talk to workers. They're like, if I'm a good worker, why would they fire me? They're not going to fire me. And I'm like, no, even if you're a great worker and have worked 10 years, they can fire you without just cause. And people are often like, really, they could. I'm like, yeah, they just need to pay out your severance for how many weeks you work. You do not have protection against unjust cause termination. So in that sense, I do think some of the issues that existed pre-COVID are the same and the barriers and fears are the same. I think when things get worse, even, that's going to create a lot more angry people who like want to make those changes because it's just not sustainable the way things are going right now in the economy and the conditions that workers are forced to face, especially the workers we deem essential that don't have the luxury to be working from home and so forth.
0: So, Quentin, you've won the vote in your workplace. What are the next steps?
2: To go into collective bargaining, I guess, would be the next big one. I mean, right now, we definitely want to just celebrate with everybody if we can find a way to do that in a safe way. But beyond that, yeah, the next big thing is to go into collective bargaining, which will be exciting. We need to figure out what we as workers want to prioritize, and we're going to make this as inclusive of a process as possible thanks to how SCIU goes about collective bargaining, it seems, which will be very good for us because there are some key issues within the workplace, but a lot of people will definitely have their own ideas and nuances as to how they want to see a contract won. So it'll be good to sit down and talk with people and figure out what we want to prioritize going forward. But yeah, I think that at the workplace right now, we're all very confident in the next steps.
0: And in terms of the Unions Are Essential campaign and SEIU Local 2, what do you anticipate between now and, say, the end of the year?
1: Well, that really just depends if there's going to be a big second wave of COVID, you know, come September, October, when the weather starts to get colder. I do anticipate that even if we do have a second wave, they're not going to shut down the economy. I don't think they'll do that again. And we need to find a way to sort of live with this and work within this pandemic. So continue to sort of organize through using, you know, masks and social distancing and meeting workers in parking lots outside or, you know, outside in parks. That's how we've been organizing. Or if we have to go and conduct house visits, we would previously say, hey, can we come inside and talk to you about this? You know, can you step outside and we talk about this two meters apart. So really, I think we just need to continue organizing, whether we have that second wave or not. I hope we don't. But I do anticipate as workers go back to the workforce and companies are using the excuse of COVID. And in some cases, it could be valid, like smaller businesses have suffered greatly, but other businesses have actually profited a lot, just like all crises that take place. So the way I see it moving forward is just that we continue to organize and, you know, fight for better working conditions for workers to have the union advantage and not have to depend. I mean, I hope the government will move forward and implement stronger labor provisions and ESA provisions, because that will help all workers, or the 10, think days they're talking about implementing, that would be great, you know, but at the end of the day, workers shouldn't be depending on if we have a pro-labor government and power to make changes in their lives, right? They can use their power and make the changes themselves through organizing. So that's what I'm hoping for and expecting as people go back to the workforce.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Christine Bro and Quentin Codner. To learn more about what we've been talking about or to get in touch with a union organizer, go to unionsareessential.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.